Well, I want to welcome all of you for joining us online. For those of you in Wichita, our hope is that it won't be too much longer when we can also gather physically as a whole community. In fact, this last Sunday, we had our first in-person gathering of any kind since the quarantine. My wife and I were thrilled to host a cookout at our home. We just invited anyone already part of New Life that was comfortable enough to gather. Uh, in fact, we just got a couple of pictures. Everything was outside. It was so much fun, just so good for the soul. We had a little over 60 adults and children, and we just enjoyed great food and connecting. We had several cornhole and other yard games going for adults and kids. And everyone just expressed how refreshing and life-giving it was to just get out, to connect, to play, to laugh, and to see friends and meet new people. And it was just such a relaxed environment, especially after quarantine and all the pervasive heaviness and isolation of recent months. Uh, it went so well that we've already got a second event planned for the last Sunday of this month. It'll be at 5 p.m. It'll be in the Bel Air area. So if you're new to New Life, you're interested, or especially if you're just curious about or even believe in God, but for one reason or another, you lost faith or you fell away or you walked away from the local church, we launched this community three years ago with you in mind. So please consider joining us for our next cookout. You'll have some great food, a relaxed environment where you can just connect, have some fun, maybe make some new friends. So just click the link in the comments to get added to our New Life family page. This is a more behind the scenes page than our public page. It'll be able to give you the chance to check out more of who we are, what we're up to, and just ways to connect beyond just the weekend message. Now, right now, we're in a series called Ask It. And today, I was going to talk about the light subject matter of sex, sexuality, and sexual expression, which we're all interested in, right? Either for us or for somebody close to us. But you'll need to come back next week for that. Just make sure if you have young children that you have earbuds in or that they are completely occupied with something else. However, teens, young adults, and up, you really need to not miss next week's, next week's installment of Ask It. Now, the reason we're interrupting our series for a week shouldn't be surprising. If a global pandemic wasn't life-disrupting enough, the death of a 46-year-old black man on May 25th due to excessive force by a white Minneapolis police officer lit a fuse. Our country was already on edge. For most of 2020, everyone's life had been completely disrupted, thrown off any sense of control, creating huge stress and anxiety for everyone. Millions, especially the already under-resourced, lost their jobs, and they've been facing an even more dire financial crisis than they were before the pandemic. For the past months, our country and our world has been held captive to anxiety and social distancing, a horrible term, by the way, and we've been quarantined for months. All of this incredible tension, and in that context, the death of George Floyd happened, and it tapped into centuries of felt injustice and racial tension and the manner of his death within the context of enormous bottled-up tension didn't just detonate a bomb, it went nuclear. And now the level of angst and anger in our country, the level of judgment, accusations, and hate, especially on social media, with global protests and national rioting, it just feels like the world's on fire. And if you dwell on it long enough, you can begin to feel overwhelmed and even feel hopeless because the problems seem so huge and complex, and in fact, they are. And it raises good questions like, with all the advancements in society, when it seems that we're so much more enlightened than the generations past, why aren't we further along than we are? Is there any solution to any of this? And I have good news and bad news. I'm going to start with the bad. 
The bad news is this. All of the brokenness in lives, not just race relationships, uh, uh, race relations, but in relationships, marriages, families, all attention, suffering, disease, poverty, injustice, all the angst, anger, hate, and violence. It's all just symptoms of something much deeper. And to be honest, we don't like to talk about it much. In fact, I seriously debated whether to keep this part of my talk just because it adds six minutes to what I'm going to say, and I value your time. But I decided that it's too important, and it's something that isn't talked about much in most progressive churches. And I confess, I I fear I've also neglected addressing it as often as I should. And it's something that we all know to be real, and it is the overwhelming presence of evil in the world. And what I mean is this, it's, it's not just a person or even a group of people or a race or nationality of people, but a presence of evil that seems to just supersede it all. And one that's no respecter of borders or age or race or gender or nationality or language. It's no respecter of century or time period. Throughout all recorded human history, you can see injustices and atrocities, evil. You don't even have to be a Christian or believe in God. And yet there are things you hear about or see a person or a group of people that they've done. And you think that's just evil. There's no other word for it. It's just evil. Uh, People with no religious belief. Look at the video of a police officer who for eight minutes and 46 seconds keeps his knee on the neck of a a restrained, unresisting, unarmed man as he's begging for help, that he couldn't breathe, and at the end calls out for his mother. And though you'd say, I'm not a religious person, you look at that and you say, that's evil. You consider BTK or ISIS or the slave trade or Nazi Germany, and you go, that was just pure evil. You ask, how can anyone think that way? How can anyone think that's okay? How could a whole nation embrace a certain way of thinking? How can humans treat other humans that way? And this may come as a surprise, but Jesus actually gives us the answer to that question. We don't like the answer. But if someone can predict and pull off their own death and resurrection, then we should listen to what they have to say. And Jesus introduced us to the reality that it's more than just a broken way of thinking. There is actually a living force behind all the brokenness, all the tension, the suffering, the disease, poverty, injustice, ethnic supremacy, racism, all the angst and anger and hate and violence. There's an instigator, an agitator, that there is an enemy in our midst. At times, Jesus refers to him as Satan. At other times, he refers to him as the devil. Jesus describes him as a thief who comes only to steal, to kill, to destroy At other times, he's referred to as the evil one. Jesus goes as far as to refer to him as the ruler of this world. Jesus says this, that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And even if you struggle with the idea of a devil, if you're honest, you admit there's something in you that that you agree You agree that it's as if from the beginning of history until now, there's this common connection, a a common presence, like something is actively and unrelenting at work just to sabotage humanity. It's like we're fighting against something more than just one another. It's like we're fighting even more than a mindset. It's like we're fighting this invisible enemy that's just stirring up conflict and dissent with every generation. And Jesus, Jesus would tell you, you're absolutely right. 
that no matter how educated you get, no matter how technologically advanced you are, no matter how wealthy you become, there is an ever-present enemy in our midst who finds no greater joy than to steal and kill and destroy anything good. Now, you may not like it, and yet you sense it's true. And Jesus would affirm your senses are correct. You are correct. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is this, and just earmuffs for the kids. We do not have to take the enemy's crap lying down. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, years later, writing to Christians, and I love Peter, he says this, your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. James, the brother of Jesus, the greatest evidence that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead and really was God's son, because what would it take for your brother to convince you he was God's son? nothing short of him rising from the dead. James writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, if we just passively let him through culture and form our consciousness and our values and behaviors, he is happy to hang with us. He's happy to keep leading us towards mutual destruction, feeding our anxiety and angst and agitation and division as long as we're willing to let him. It's like the 24-hour news cycle. You realize the way they keep you watching is by feeding and fueling your anxiety, your angst, and your agitation, and the added bonus of taking your money. The only way to stop it, log off, turn it off, resist it. Social media, Facebook, it was recently documented. Their algorithms intentionally fill your feed with posts tailored specifically to you based on your posts and likes designed to elicit a visceral response so that you will scroll, post, and click more often. The only way to stop it, log off, turn it off, turn away from it, resist it. It's amazing the people that tell me how lighter that they they feel when they take a break from social media, and there's a reason why. So practically, we get this. And the truth is, the first hashtag resist movement started 2,000 years ago. But sadly, we have forgotten or refused to embrace who the real enemy is. And we've turned on one another based on things like ethnicity and politics and religion. And we have perpetrated the most heinous acts upon one another. And Jesus gave us the only way to resist and overcome all the evil and injustice in this world. The problem is we've forgotten. Christians have forgotten that there's an enemy in our midst and there is only one way to resist him. And entire church communities have forgotten it. Huge segments of Christianity have forgotten it. And far too often because of that, we have been part of the problem, not the solution, including in race relations. And we must own that. And the strategy is not what we expect. Jesus' strategy for effective resistance is counterintuitive. In some ways, it seems too small, too passive, too insignificant. And yet, it was the resistance that he introduced that turned an entire empire upside down. And it was the strategy of Jesus that changed the world once, once and can change it again. One of the best examples of this strategy of Jesus is recorded for us by Luke, who was a doctor. He was a man of study and science. He thoroughly investigated everything Jesus because he took facts seriously. So we have this amazing document that sheds so much light on the life, the teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the story we're about to learn from, even if you didn't grow up in church, odds are you know the story. And you for sure know the two-word term from this story. It's globally recognized. And even if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, in the end, whether you like it or not, you're going to agree with Jesus. 
you're going to agree that his strategy really is the only strategy that has any chance of overcoming pain and injustice in our country and in this broken world. Luke tells us in chapter 10, Luke 10, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus because the religious leaders hated Jesus. They're constantly trying to trip him up and discredit him, if not get rid of him altogether, which they ultimately did, so they thought. And the religious leader asked Jesus a question that most of us ask at some point in our lives. It's the question asked by anyone who believes that there's a God out there somewhere, who believes there's more to this life than this life, something after, maybe maybe heaven. And he asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, if there's a, a checklist, a level of good I must achieve in order to get to heaven when I die, how good is good enough? In fact, most people, even most Christians, if you ask them, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? They'll usually reply, yes, I think so. And if you ask why, the most common response is some version of, well, I try to be a good person. I try to be good. And what they're saying is, if there's heaven, I assume good people go to heaven. And my hope is wherever the bar of good is, I have been good enough. Which, by the way, if that's what you believe, I just need you to know Nowhere did Jesus ever teach good people go to heaven. In fact, in not one of the 27 documents that make up the New Testament are we ever told you go to heaven if you're good enough. In fact, we're told the opposite. We're told that we can never be good enough to earn our way to heaven. So I don't know who told you that, but you need to know that did not come from Jesus. In fact, and I know this sounds so narrow, but Jesus said there's only one way to heaven. And since the death rate is still 100%, it would be well worth your time to discover what that one way is. And if you message me, we can have a conversation about what Jesus actually taught. And I mean that. You message me and over lunch, coffee, or a beer. Let's talk, okay? Okay, so back to Jesus. Jesus replies to the question with a question because remember, this expert in the law is trying to put Jesus to the test and trap him. What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? And out of the 613 Jewish commands, he just happens to pull out, of, out the correct two. Now here's the deal. Whenever Jesus, wherever Jesus went, there were crowds, and Jesus often repeated his teachings. My point is this. Jesus taught more than once about the greatest command. So odds are the religious leader had heard Jesus teach on this before, or someone else had told him what Jesus taught. Because he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ding, 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 ding. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. And then, then Luke gives us a sentence of commentary to let us know what's really behind his follow-up question. But he, the teacher of the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's so easy for us to sit in judgment of this creep, right? And yet, the very thing we hate in him, we justify in ourselves. In other words, we do the very same thing. We ask, where's the line? Where's the loophole? How close to sin can I get without sinning if there is such a thing? How good is good enough? What is the minimum entrance requirement? And we treat God like the IRS or a hotel, right? 
I mean, none of you that have done your taxes for 2019 finished up and went, well, that doesn't seem a sufficient amount to pay the government. I think I'll just round up. In fact, while I'm at it, let me just add in the stimulus money I got. Not one of you has ever gotten to a hotel and said, you know, I don't think you're charging enough for that room. I'd like to pay the full rack rate. In fact, add a little more for the Hilton family and their shareholders. They seem like sweet people. No, we want to know what is the bare minimum that will meet my obligation, keep me out of jail, and get me into some sweet digs, right? And that's how we treat God. So before we get all self-righteous about what a religious dirtbag this religious leader is, we need to first acknowledge the religious dirtbag in the mirror. Just saying. But Jesus was the master teacher, the master storyteller, and his response gives us such an uncomfortable clarity into his resist strategy. But here's the problem. The problem is people and church people, especially for centuries, have known the story Jesus tells, the strategy he shares, and the application. But far too often we have forgotten and failed in executing his application, and a strategy without execution is worthless. In reply, Jesus did what Jesus often did. He told a story to teach, to instruct, to illustrate. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, which all of his listeners would have just nodded their heads in understanding because this wasn't uncommon. The journey is about 25 miles straight east, a full day's journey at least on foot, and the road to Jericho could be very perilous, especially if traveling alone. They stripped him of his clothes because clothing was very expensive. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. And sadly, with the most recent news and all the videos going around on social media, a person being nearly beaten to death, this isn't hard to picture, is it? The violence and the horror of it. Well, the priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came by the place, he saw the man, and he too passed by on the other side. So here's the picture. The guy's lying there. He's bleeding and dying. And along comes two fellow Jews who also happen to be religious leaders. This means that from childhood, these men, these men had memorized word for word the Torah, the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, so they could quote verbatim, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and they could quote, love your neighbor as yourself. So they knew this, and yet they did nothing. And the justification, the excuse, the loophole for them was had they touched this man, they would have become ceremonially and religiously unclean. And, 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 and would have, how ironic is this with what we have been dealing with as a nation, they would have had to quarantine themselves for seven days, but just seven days, no joke. And, and that would have totally thrown off their social and religious calendars. And how could I do my duties to God if I can't go to people's homes and enjoy the food they feed me and go to synagogue and go to the temple? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to where the man was. And everyone in Jesus' audience would have assumed not only is the Samaritan going to walk by, actually odds are he may just finish this guy off out of spite. The angst between the Jews and the Samaritans was fierce. Imagine the hatred, hatred between the Serbs and the Bosnians, or the Serbs and the Muslim, Muslims in Bosnia, or the enmity between the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern, Northern Ireland, or feuding between street gangs in L.A. or New York. 
Ethnicity, politics, and religion were all involved. And then Jesus shocks the crowd. When the Samaritan saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then if that wasn't unbelievable enough, then the next day he took out two denarii, which was two days wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him, he said, and then when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Are you kidding me? These two are enemies. These men see eye to eye on nothing. These men hate one another on all fronts, ethnicity, politics, and religion. But isn't it awesome that we in the 21st century, primarily Westerners, we've become so enlightened and educated and advanced that none of this is a problem anymore. Again, remember, it doesn't matter how enlightened or educated or advanced we get. There is an enemy of the heart and the mind in our midst, an ever-present, never-resting saboteur. And Jesus is about to bring the resistance strategy home as he turns the table on this self-righteous, loophole, justification-seeking religious man who I'll remind you is a reflection of us. Jesus asked, which of these three, the two religious men who had memorized their Bibles or the ethnic, political, and religious adversary, which was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And in that moment, the religious leader knew, I've been caught in my own trap. Because Jesus was the master teacher, and the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus defines his resistance movement. Go and do likewise. In Jesus' final command, he defines his movement, a movement that blows away all of our categories and loopholes. But Jesus, they don't look like me. Go and do likewise. But Jesus, they're Democrat. Go and do likewise. But Jesus, they're Republican. Go and do likewise. But Jesus, they're from the wrong side of the border. Go and do likewise. But Jesus, they're gun lovers. They want to take my guns. They want to build a wall. They want open borders. They're black lives matter. They're all lives matter. They're blue lives matter. They're Antifa. They're no lives matter. They're white. They're black. They're straight. They're LGBTQ. I think they're weird. They're wrong. I find them offensive. Jesus says, or Jesus, they are nothing like me. Their values. They are my adversary when it comes to ethnicity and politics and religion and values and preferences. And Jesus would say, you are not listening. I have removed all your loopholes, all your excuses, all your qualifications and justifications. Jesus says, I am telling you, you go do for your neighbor as I have defined neighbor, what I have done for you. Well, what have you done for me, Jesus? Well, I've shown you unbelievable mercy when you were my adversary. And then later, the apostle Paul He would say it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In another place, he says, while we were God's enemies, God loved us and demonstrated through giving his son on our behalf. And Jesus gave his life for us with no guarantee we would offer any love in return. Jesus says, as I have loved you without qualification, justification, or loophole, now you go. 
love one another, including the one another's that you have nothing in common with, including the one another's that you might even consider your ethnic, your political, your religious adversary. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus reveals it in the story of the Good Samaritan. Without qualification, justification, or loophole, he saw a need, the Samaritan saw a need, he didn't judge, he took pity, and he took action. If I were to break it down anymore, he saw a need, he took pity, and he emotionally empathized. He drew near to the man, he went to him. He acted compassionately. He ended up bandaging his wounds. He shared resources. He poured on oil and wine. He gave time. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and then he took care of him all night. He gave some money, gave two days wages, and then he advocated. He tells another person, look after him. I'm going to cover the cost when I return. I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And I'm telling you, for far too long, large segments of Christianity and the church, we have lost sight of Jesus's strategy. Most already part of our community know that on my right forearm is tattooed a question, and it's there to daily remind me of what Jesus said would change lives and change the world and what would cause people to know that one resists the enemy and follows him. Ultimately, the entire parable of the Good Samaritan is simply another effort by Jesus to teach his ultimate singular command to love one another as I have loved you. Even while you were my enemy, I laid my life down for you and served your best interest, which means in every circumstance, in every relational decision, what should inform what I do and don't do, what should inform what I say and don't say is the answer to this question. What does love require? of me. And as I begin to wrap up, I want to address the biggest thing we're facing in this moment as a country. Right now, we are seeing frustration and pain and anger, even rage from the black community at large. What must not be lost in the chaos of the looting and the rioting that's being carried out by a small percentage of people is the fact that whether you understand it or not, whether you've seen it or not, for millions of black Americans, there has been a very real experience of racial inequality, not for all, but for a huge percentage. And of course, we white people like to get defensive and point to all the successful black people we've seen or known, or even to the voices within the black community that are voices of dissent when it comes to racism. We want to argue the merits of America, where you're only limited by your own initiative and personal choices and want to debate systematic racism. But the reality is for millions of black men, women, and young people, they have had to deal with racism some their whole lives. Just this past week, a friend of mine who's a business owner, she had a white woman come into her shop to shop at her store, and after a bit, the customer then came to check out. The cashier was a young black girl of 16. After paying for her items, the woman woman paused, looked at the girl, and then asked her if she was at the quick trip in Wichita the night that it was looted. The girl was shocked, and she said, no, why do you ask? And the woman replied, oh, Well, you just look like somebody who would have been there. I'm telling you, if you're white, and especially if you're a Jesus follower, 
one of the most meaningful things that you can do right now and in the future is to simply acknowledge that racial injustices and racism exist and empathize with those around you that are hurting. By reaching out to the people of color in your life, to show that you care, to mourn with them, to learn together, this is the first step in the healing process. And listen, I get it. The problem of racial injustice and racism is huge and complex. The solution we've talked about today, and it's simple. The hard part is the execution of it. And so that you don't get overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem, let me just help you out. Informed by Jesus' strategy and what love requires of you, just do for one what you wish you could do for all. I mean, how much love and healing do you think that that 16-year-old girl needs to help overcome the wounds inflicted on her by people who think they're superior because of the color of their skin? I mean, do you think this was the first first time someone white said something like that to her? This is the time, especially for those of us who are white, and Jesus' followers to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and to humble ourselves. Jesus led the way in responding to the question, what does love require of me? And then he laid his life down for us while we were still his enemy. And then he turns to us and says, now you go and do likewise. What does love require of me? Let me pray for us. Father, right now is a very difficult time in our country. This whole, really, this whole first half of the year has been extremely difficult. And God, we need divine intervention. We need you. We need something bigger than us. And Father, I pray for all of us who who claim to believe in you, to follow your resurrected son, that we would reflect the very same love and compassion that your spirit, Jesus, when he left this earth, he said, I'm not leaving you alone. He, he promised to help her Holy Spirit. God, we, we pray for that help so that we will handle this well. That God, that we might even create amazing change for the next generation so that we hand off our country and our world stronger and better than it was when we got it. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, again, I just want to thank all of you for joining us today. Uh, again, there's a link in the comments where if you click that link, uh, I would just love for you, if you're if this connected with you at all, if you're interested in connecting at all in community, exploring, just click the link to join our family group. Promise you're not going to get spammed or bombarded or committed to anything. Uh, just just uh, would click that, and then that way we can keep you informed and in touch base with you. And I, and I was totally serious. If you're someone you've truly got questions about your faith, then you message me. I will meet you anywhere in Wichita or the Wichita area, and we'll enjoy some coffee together, a meal together, a beer together, whatever it is, and we'll have that conversation. All right. So your next step, click the link. Message me if you're interested in in, uh, having a conversation. And remember, next week, uh, sex, sexuality, and sexual expression. Awesome week to be here. Bring a friend. No small kids in the room. All right. We'll see you next week.